Good afternoon. Um, it's my very great pleasure to welcome all of you today uh, to today's, today's panel um, entitled Rebellion and Foundation, Southeast Asia to UK and 50 Years of Development. The panel is organised by the newly inaugurated LSE Sorcery Hawk Southeast Asia Centre in conjunction with the LSE Literary Festival. Now, before I introduce our three speakers to you, I'd like to set up some housekeeping matters. Um, our three speakers will speak in turn for the first 45 minutes, and this will be followed by the 45-minute question and answer session um, involving the audience. Um, the event will finish at 4.30 p.m., um, and because this event is filmed, we would appreciate it if all of you could turn off your mobile phones, please, and any other ring devices. Thank you. Um, I would also like to thank uh, several individuals um, involved in the organization of this event. Um, Professor Danny Kuo, the director of the center. Uh, Jin Teng Preven, um, a creative producer and director based in the UK. Chuyin Mok, um, an LSE graduate and creative producer who works across various uh, arts disciplines. And Dr. Shuri Tan, a senior lecturer at the Royal Holloway University of London. We also like to thank the High Commission of Singapore for their support um, and of this project and of the centre. <laughs> now I'd like to move on to some of the key themes which this panel hopes to address today. Well firstly, what are the creative voices contending for the soul of the region where freedom, economic prosperity, um, and other issues like political maturity continue to evolve in a myriad of unexpected and exciting ways. Um, what forces of rebellion really drive the creative soul, especially in societies where economic success is actually searched ahead of many other dimensions? What are the forces that drive spiritual and artistic development in the region? Is creativity a form of rebellion? Well, it is my pleasure to welcome our first speaker for today, um, Nixon Fong. Now, Nixon is a producer and director of Singaporean Origin and the CEO and founder of Eight Story Studios. He received the Academy Award for Scientific and Technical Achievement um, in 90, uh, 2013. And now, Nixon today will be speaking about the growing trends um, in in the China film industry, um, specifically from Hollywood, and how the China film industry and market has inspired him to start a new way, uh, venture in Beijing, despite some tough business practices and censorship regulations. Um, Nixon, I'm truly delighted to welcome you today. Well, thank you, Felicia. Uh, if I may, I'll just head over to my slides. <coughs> I think it's easier. I do the standing up. Right. So I'm going to do a really fast presentation here. It's a lightning presentation. Um, okay, I'm good. So on the screen here, this is um, my new company. It's been around for about three or four years. Uh, it's called Real Sandbox. Um, we're based mainly in Singapore and Beijing right now. We have an LA office. Um, what we do is uh, we do a lot of pre-production for films, it means we develop the story, develop design characters, and a lot of concept art. Um, 
So we recently have a joint venture with Laura Films, uh, which I'll introduce in a, in a, in a little bit. Um, and Xtroy is my own company. It's more of a branding company for films. And uh, Real Sandbox, it's all in the midst of uh, this group here. So this is a film that um, <coughs> Laura Films just produced recently. It draws over 110 million US dollars in China. Um, and <coughs> we're in a partnership with the producer. Um, it's finally the guy on the left hand side here. Uh, coincidentally, he just won Academy Award for technical achievement last year, too. Um, he's quite an entrepreneur. Um, he has a he has a group of uh, technology companies. He wasn't a film producer six years ago, but um, mainly he's in a business for uh, unmanned submarines, uh, underwater robotics. But he has a crazy passion for film. So when we met each other about a year ago, we decided that we should start a venture together, um, and we are going to create a so-called miniature and modeling company. <clears throat> you know, a lot of film um, production you see like scale miniatures. So we shoot a lot of these uh, special effects in film. So we're going to create a new uh, company in Beijing that does a lot of that and also in, uh, in pre-production. <coughs> so a little bit about myself here. Uh, these are some of the films that I've worked on. Um, in the past, uh, I went to school in the U.S. in the early 90s. Um, and I graduated, my first job uh, in Hollywood was, uh, was Shrek, uh, which I actually took part in the pre-production work, storytelling, and designing the characters. So these were the early days of uh, what we call CGI animation, uh, which at the time DreamWorks was trying to make, um, trying to figure out how to make animated films you know, before um, <clears throat> we have really, any really real um, good technology for making CGI. Um, it was an interesting um, period because I was in a lot of pre-production and development work at the same time, so I was exposed to a lot of the technology in creating uh, um, CGI animation. So after DreamWorks, I went on and worked at a few companies called uh, Sony Pictures Imageworks, which I was involved in a lot of digital visual effects work like Starship Troopers, Godzilla, and also Stuart Little. <clears throat> My last two films uh, was The Matrix. Um, I was actually a technical director for the sequence uh, in Matrix that you, you probably remember it's a scene whereby all the Sentinels pour in and they were shooting up all the Sentinels. So that was, a, it was called a Zion scene. I was the software programmer and also um, uh, script writer to call it. I was doing a lot of programming. <clears throat> so you can see I think went from an artist to a programmer towards the later part of my career. And I won an Academy Award for Technical Achievement uh, in uh, 2013 for really geeky stuff actually. <laughs> um, it's actually a muscle system that a lot of uh, films used nowadays in, uh, um, in character animation, right? So, so this is uh, sort of me in a nutshell. Oops. So this current uh, 
film that I'm engaging right now with Laura Films is a shipwreck movie. So what you see in the images here is, um, I've probably seen like 20 shipwreck movies recently. Um, and just trying to understand how to sink a ship in an interesting way. Something that people have not seen before. So these are images that, you know, uh, created uh, by our artists in, uh, in Singapore and Malaysia. Um, and uh, we're just finding out different ways of actually raising huge waves. And all this is going to be in CGI. is going to be created in a computer. So before this process, uh, we have what we call concept arts. Um, it kind of depicts, you know, what the scene will look like in terms of lighting composition. So this is actually a a real um, inspired by a real event. So this film will be out in about two years from now. So we're in the early stages of pre-production. So this is a film that I worked on uh, in Hong Kong. This is my first Asian production film. So I'm going to show you a little quick video here on what the pre-production entails in a film like this. This is a futuristic film. So we designed a lot of the, um, um, the elements of the film. These are all the buildings that we designed. So in this film, they're like um, the city seats. It's kind of like a Blade Runner type uh, film. If you've seen Blade Runner, um, this kind of resembles a lot of the sort of Blade Runner, sort of an apocalyptic and uh, very stylized, futuristic city. So we spent about nine months designing all the interior, um, the city, and I was the visual effects supervisor on set. We did a 45-day shoot in Hong Kong and China. It was very interesting because I never shot a movie in Asia before. This is the first production, right? I learned a lot um, about set experience in, uh, in Asia. So the interesting thing is this director, he's actually, this is his first CGI movie. So in this, in this movie, we have about seven to 900 shots, they're all CGI. So this is the car chase sequence. So these are some of the uh, pre-production work that we do before we actually shot the movie, right? So this is another interesting movie uh, that we did as a short film. And obviously, because of limited time, I couldn't show you. This is like a 20-minute film, but it was projected on water. So there was uh, this high-powered water, that was this wild water that was shoot up like 30 meters tall, and it's about 120 meters long. So this is probably one of the biggest water installations in Beijing right now. And I think they're going to screen this right after Chinese New Year, which is right about now, right? So it's a story that, about dragons and Kirin, so we created this in about less than four months. So this is the concept art for it. So I also completed two other films, uh, animated films. This is actually animated films for Unilever. You probably know it, they know it for a very big uh, consumer product company. Um, instead of selling ice cream, you know, TV commercials right now, they're actually making animated films for the characters. So this is the, some of the pre-production work and concept art that we did for this film. It's out in Europe, right, and some parts of Asia. So this is our own animated film. It's actually a 
an action adventure about uh, a gecko and a frog saving the world by delivering a peace message to in, in wartime. The <laughs> <laughs> clicker. Yeah, and this is a um, this is our most recent uh, little commercial. Um, it, it turned out to be it was a commercial at first, but now it's a TV series, and we're talking to DreamWorks and co-producing it right now. It's called Food Wars. Um, it's actually a very simple idea. It's actually healthy food versus greasy food. <laughs> so the greasy food, like you know, the boss of the greasy food is the burger. Obviously, we might be the super. Burger King or uh, McDonald's. Uh, we try to make them generic. So it's a very simple story. It's about this greasy, you know, bunch of guys. You know, he has the minutes, the fries, which you can see, right next to the ketchup. So he go around the world, um, invading all the healthy food. So like, they go to they go to Tokyo and deep fry all the sushi that you can find. <laughs> so so he goes on. You know, he goes around the world and try. Obviously, he never wins. It's kind of like a Tom and Jerry type. Uh, uh, cartoon animation. So this is a little trailer that we did. That's the sushi chef, by the way. with the wasabi guy. So the burger guy just ate it, so you know, it's too spicy. So so really simple concept like this and uh, DreamWorks would have liked it and hopefully this will be available by the end of the year. Uh, it will be freely you know distributed online on YouTube and all the chats. Am I good? Okay. And Toby and Toba, this is uh, two little cute characters that plays uh, different roles. Uh, one's a koala and the other one I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it's it's a, a fun little series that actually teaches kids they they play different roles in in this short animation. And I have Chop Chops too. It's uh, actually an apocalyptic uh, you know action uh, comic and TV series. Uh, we just released the comics recently, and uh, this is actually a ghost busting uh, animated uh, series. So. That's the end of my presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nixon, for your really exciting presentation. Um, our next speaker is uh, Zaki Anwar. Now, Zaki has very modestly asked me to introduce him as just a Malaysian artist, but I will use my prerogative as chair to state that Zaki is in fact one of the leading artists in the Southeast Asian region. Now, Zaki will be showing us some pictures of his work. 
um, which has largely focused on the spiritual and metaphysical aspects of urban life. Um, they also relate very closely to the social, political, and religious climate of Malaysia and the region. Saki, it's my real pleasure to hand this over to you. Thank you. Um, what I would like to speak about today is um, how my paintings reflect my personal philosophy and help me gain a deeper understanding of myself and the region I come from. I come from Malaysia. It is a multicultural, multi-religious country, but despite the diversity, we are predominantly uh, a Muslim country. I started life as an artist um, rather late. It wasn't until I was 40 that I started painting. The first few works I did were of very simple things I found in the house. Um, this picture here is of my mother's castle, actually. So she used to boil water with this every morning, you know. So my early works were basically finding something interesting, putting it on a table and painting it. This went on for, for a number of years. And after a while, it was getting rather monotonous. And I decided to um, find something a bit more exciting to paint. And I started a new series of works, which were also still lives but they were basically of um, fruits. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can figure out what these fruits are doing, <laughs> but a friend of mine called them the, the vegetarian Kama Sutra. <laughs> um, this one here is called 120 Days of Sodom. I don't know if you're familiar with the work. It, it's a book by the Marquis de Sade, I think. It's, it's sort of a dirty book which I read when I was a teenager. <laughs> um, well, you know, living in Malaysia, there, which is a very conservative country, there are many restrictions. Um, sexual preferences, sexual identities, a uh, very touchy subject for most people. But these paintings wasn't a protest against uh, repression. Rather, it was more a light-hearted celebration of sexuality. At about this time, I was thinking of moving on to my next series. Uh, an incident occurred, which led to uh, a new series of painting. I had a well, I had a terrible fight with a friend because um, I smoked in his car. <laughs> what happened was I borrowed his car and I, I smoked in it. We had a terrible fight, and after the quarrel, I was so upset that I went straight to the studio and painted a picture of a man smoking. <laughs> um, um, let, let me tell you a bit more about, about this series of works, you know. Um, after a while, this, when this series uh, went on, um, I realized that it wasn't the cigarette that I was uh, interested in. You know? It was the smoke that covers the person's face. That was what was fascinating about, to me about the series. And um, I found the more I covered the person's face with smoke, the more intriguing it was. And at a certain point, I realized the smoke wasn't just smoke. It was 
a kind of mask um, covering the person's face. And this mask, made of smoke, and um, it, it is formless and, and fluid. It, it's, it was sort of um, ambiguous. You see, mask in Asian society is very big. Um, but these are not like, you know, a Chinese or a Balinese mask. I was thinking, this is more like a, like a psychological mask. And slowly, it became clear to me that the identity of the person in the picture was mine. The series of paintings was almost like a self-portrait. Uh, and, and this psychological mask are made of ideas and thoughts, and the fact that it hides the face raises questions of um, identity. For me, painting is a form of self-analysis. Sometimes images that appear on the canvas can come deep from the subconscious, and the fact that they, they, they come from within you indicates that they contain some meaning. These paintings, I thought, was asking me to look at myself. Who am I? Where do I come from? What am I doing here? And I thought the best way to answer these questions was to, was to look back at my heritage. I come from a culture deeply rooted in the ancient civilizations of Angkor and Barobudo with religions such as Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam. This notion led to my next series of works, which was an exploration of the diversity of beliefs in Southeast Asia. Um, I started painting images of the Buddha, um, Hindu deities. Um, here again, the Buddha, and on the left, you can see there's a rose there. The rose is a symbol which is used in um, Sufism. Sufism is a form of Islamic mysticism. And at that point in my life, I was um, uh, quite interested in it. And here, a crucifixion. Um, these paintings, you know, coming from a conservative country, these paintings wasn't really done to provoke people. It started as a personal journey of discovery, but along the line, the fact that I was a Muslim, uh, painting pictures of <coughs> Buddhas and Hindu gods, raised a few eyebrows. Islamic fundamentalism was on the rise in Malaysia, and the idea of, of a Muslim painting such pictures wasn't comfortable for some people. But again, you know, for me, just like the fruit paintings, you know, this wasn't a protest against uh, any form of fundamentalism. Rather, it was a celebration of diversity and the richness of our heritage. I believe that there is a unity in the diversity that surrounds us, that in the end we are all connected, that there is a string that runs through all forms of thoughts and ideas. For example, this room is part of a building, this building is part of a city, this city is part of a country, and the country is part of this planet, and this planet is part of a universe. You know, everything, no matter how diverse or different, are somehow connected. This idea of a unifying concept, 
um, that ties everything together led to a new series of works. The new works were a series of um, nudes, male nudes. Um, and there's a reason for the nudity. This works was a sort of a visual summation of my ideas on, on, on unity. I used the image of a man alone on a plain background. He gives very little clue as to the nature of his um, identity. He is naked and gives no indication of his race and culture or even place and time. Without a particular identity, the figure becomes something of an icon, a person whose ambiguous nature symbolizes the concept of uh, unity. And later on, um, the series developed further into, um, well, that's a man of the tale. <laughs> and um, that later developed into a series of animals, that's uh, a babirusa, and, uh, and later still a warthog. And even later, uh, 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 an animal and a man, you know. Um, these are works that I'm currently working on, so I won't talk too much about them. But I would just like to say that a lot of my pictures are there because I felt a compulsion to paint them. Sometimes pictures come into my mind and I couldn't figure them out. But the compulsion is so strong that I have to paint them. The understanding of the meaning behind the pictures comes much later. The process is like an exercise in excavating the self. You know, for, for me, sometimes going into the studio is like going to see a psychiatrist. But, <laughs> but as an artist, you have to keep on pushing. And I don't know if ultimately there will be a conclusion, but for the moment, the journey is what interests me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Saki, for your presentation and for sharing with us this journey of yours and um, the evocative, um, very sensory nature of your journey. It really shines true in your artworks. Thank you very much. Um, our third and final speaker today uh, is Yang Mei Ui. Um, Yang Mei is a creative artist whose work explores the transformative power uh, of personal narrative. Um, she's also a best-selling novelist and an acclaimed writer and performer. Now, Yang Mei's sell-out solo show, uh, Bound Feet Blues, will return to the West End in November and December 2015, so we do look forward to that. Now, Yang Mei will be speaking about Madeka, freedom, point of view, and coming out. As a novelist, she's interested in how art and literature can open up empathy and compassion um, within people's um, hearts and really by using points of view to see inside the hearts and minds of people, um, especially people who think we may have little in common with. So it is a great, a great pleasure to welcome Yang Mei today. Thank you. <coughs> um, as you can see, I have six slides. Um, as a writer, I'm interested in point of view because it's a powerful tool that lets you go inside the head of a character. And through that means, 
encourage, open up your reader's empathy and compassion for that character. Particularly if that character is very different from whoever your reader is. And my argument for today is that we need to be more flexible in our points of view in the real world, outside of literature. Because that is the way that we can open up empathy and compassion towards people who are very different from us. So, back in the bad old days of the British Empire, we had the British ruling classes, and they had the dominant point of view. They controlled the narrative. So in a photograph like this, in a history book, most likely we would know the names of all the British people in it. Lord this, General that, Sir the other. But the natives, natives, who are they? They will most likely be nameless. Why is that important? It's important because what happened back then was that the British controlled the dominant point of view, the dominant narrative. Their subjective point of view made them human. They are human beings. They controlled the narrative. Those other people out there, the natives, they don't have names. We don't have to care about them. So we can make all kinds of judgments. The natives are lazy. They're degenerate. They're dirty. They're filthy. They're savages. And we can treat them however we like. That led to the slave trade, the way that Chinese coolies were treated very badly um, in the sugarcane fields and so on. You know your British history, so I won't dwell on that. But not everybody, obviously, had that very rigid point of view. I mentioned the passage, A Passage to India by the author E.M. Forster. Now, in that book, we are in the point of view of the British, generally. But E.M. Forster also goes inside the head of the Asian doctor, Dr. Aziz. And he is a sympathetic character. Now, this is quite revolutionary in my point of view, because back in the Victorian period, um, at the height of the British Empire, here was a writer who tried to make an Asian man, the other, sympathetic. My question is, why was he interested to do that? And why was he successful in doing it? And we'll come back to Ian Forster in a minute. So fast forward to the post-war period. And the colonies, uh, India, Malaysia, Africa, all over the British Empire, were rebelling. They wanted to be seen and heard. No longer are they, were they satisfied to be just the natives, those nameless people. They wanted to control, we wanted to control, our own destiny and to make choices about our own lives and to be self-governing, self-individuated peoples. In the uh, family picture over there, that's me, little baby, in 1963, which is the same year as Malaysia's independence, I'm being held by my grandfather, Tan Sri Dr. Lim Sui An. He was one of the six signatories of the Malaysia Agreement, the treaty with Britain that created the nation of Malaysia. So, we have the other stepping into the dominant point of view. We are free, are we? The dominant point of view of the Asians, the Africans, the Malaysians, generally tends to be the perspective of the adult male with a patriarchal emphasis and a focus on traditional and family values. Those people who fit into that box are free. But what about everybody else? The others. 
the people who do not fit in to that picture of the ma adult male patriarch um, with traditional and family values. What happens to them? They become the other. So it's easy for us to make statements about them. They're degenerate, they're filthy, they're dirty, they're not human. So we can treat them however we like. They have fewer rights than us. I have fewer rights than them. So Ian Forster comes in in that little picture there because as a British man in the Victorian Edwardian period at part of the British ruling elite, he was gay. So I feel that his being gay meant that although he was part of the elite, he was also able to step outside that elite and to have the perspective of the outsider, which meant that he was more able to move even further to the side and take the perspective of the other, of Dr. Aziz, the other other. And I'm not saying that we all have to be gay in order to be empathetic or compassionate, but rather for Ian Forster, because he was already able to take a step outside as an outsider, he was able to extend his empathy and compassion for those others. And my plea from the heart is, let us all open ourselves to empathy and compassion by trying to adopt other people's point of view. In my novel, Mind Game, it's the first and possibly only Malaysian lesbian thriller. <laughs> um, it's a thriller, so it's got whiz-bang, it's got car chasers, it's got men with guns. But in the story, I'm actually trying to grapple with some serious themes. If you, as a nation and a society, have the opportunity to create a happy, homogenous society by mind manipulation, would you do it? Should you do it? And as an individual, thinking about your family, all those people who really irritate you in your family, the arguments you've had with your partner, your spouse, if you had the opportunity through mind manipulation to make them agree with you, to make them love you, to, so that you can live happily ever after, would you? Should you? So in the novel, I go inside the head of a man called Sue. He's the leader of the Asian Values Alliance. And he really believes that he wants to make a really much better Asian society by getting rid of the deviants, getting rid of the criminals, all those people who don't fit into this patriarchal, traditional family view. I also go into the head of a lesbian lawyer, Faye. And she's just trying to do her best as a lawyer, as a woman who loves another woman, trying to look after her family. And I try to make them both sympathetic so that you can see both points of view, what it's like to be the other, what it's like to have the dominant point of view. And at the end of the day, in the novel, what I'm arguing for is really that we need to have the freedom to choose our own destiny and our own lifestyles and who we love whether we are in the dominant culture or whether we are the so-called other. My current project is Bound Feet Blues, as Felicia mentioned. It's a solo performance. 
and it's, uh, we're planning a three-week run in November, December this year, uh, back at the Tristan Bates in, in the West End. And in that story, I weave together the story of my great-grandmother in China who had bound feet and my own personal coming-out story. Now, the practice of foot-binding endured for a thousand years in China. Why? Because a woman with tiny feet was considered the most beautiful kind of woman. And mothers and grandmothers did that to their daughters for 40 generations. The process is not just about tying up your feet. You have to break the feet. So at the age of four, a little girl would be taken by her mum and her grandmother, the people who are supposed to protect her, and they would break her feet and tie it with bandages. It's not a one-off process, because if you think about it, a little girl's feet keeps growing until she's about 14. So it can take up to 10 years of regular breaking of the foot and tying it up. What does that do to the psyche and emotional state of a young girl? The end result is a woman who is obedient and submissive. She cannot run away. She's just got to submit to this. So she gives up. Her spirit is broken. And she is the exemplary woman. There was this cult of the exemplary woman. A woman who was obedient and submissive and with beautiful tiny feet, who was literally kept in her place by society. So in this um, uh, theatre work, I explore the question, how do you break out of this dominant point of view? Because the women internalised the idea that a woman could only be beautiful with these bound feet, that a natural woman was ugly and horrible and worthless. So how do you break out of this uh, and become a self-governing, self-individuated, powerful woman? And no matter that you're not an exemplary woman, you're loud and you're big and you've got big feet and you're, you want to run around and um, uh, speak back to your husband. What about that point of view? What about being free to be that kind of woman? So in conclusion, for me, rebellion is the desire to be seen and heard. And during the British Empire, the native people wanted to be seen and heard, but they were suppressed and refused any identities. So they rebelled, and they ousted the British, and they stepped into the dominant point of view. But there were still those other others who are not given the sense of being a human being. They want to be seen and heard. And why not? Because for me, true freedom comes about from empathy and compassion. And I would look around this room and look at each other. I think I'm right. But you may think I'm wrong. So I am the other to you. You are the other to me. One time or other, we are the other. But through empathy and compassion, by being able to step into another point of view, let's hope that we can help each other understand each other. And the foundations for a successful and happy society is one that is about accepting otherness, embracing imperfection and recognizing that there is a rebel in each of us, because each of us wants to be seen and heard. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Yang Mei, for your excellent presentation. Um, I was really struck by how um, you attempt to give a voice um, to the other, uh, to point of view, and to open up this entirely contested <coughs> space of the other. So thank you very much. Um, well, I'd like to thank all three speakers for their truly scintillating presentations, but it's now time for me to open the discussion to the floor. Um, so we will be taking um, questions and answers for the next 45 minutes. And um, to, to ease this process, I would like to collect uh, three or four questions at a time from the audience, um, and then our speakers can uh, feel free to answer uh, the question as, as appropriate or not. Um, so if you do have a question, um, I would uh, be grateful if you could uh, introduce yourself, and also to wait um, for the um, cameras, um, to, to, to um, the microphone to get to you, and also there will be... Um, cameras um, coming your way, I believe. Um, so, to get the ball rolling, um, do we have anyone who wish to ask our speakers? Thank you very much. I'm Tim Lancaster. I wonder if Yana May could tell us a little about her grandmother and what happened. <laughs> Or do I have to wait to see the show? You have to come and see the show. <laughs> um, well, my great-grandmother um, was uh, born into uh, a well-off family, but uh, they, they lost um, their money, um, and uh, she had bound feet. And so she was married into a family uh, that um, was also fairly well-off, but they lost their money as well. Um, it was during the opium period, and there was um, uh, lots of uh, the patriarchs were smoking up all the money through opium. Um, and so she uh, was um, then made to go and work in the fields and work in the households uh, because they didn't have any more servants. And so with her bound feet, that was, uh, an, as you can imagine, an excruciating experience. Um, and uh, she ran away and came to, and this was in China, so she came away to, to Malaya. Um, and... Uh, met my great-grandfather there and away we go with the rest of the family. So I'm not quite sure what, what, it, what, what it is that you wanted to know, but other than that. Um, yes, please, over there. And um, we can take the second question too. Um, I just wonder what comments each of the panel... We've heard about your individual work, your individual preoccupations. Um, coming out and the place of women and, and, and the position of being um, um, a supplicant, disempowered woman, um, the place of, um, I don't know, male identity or, or, or ideas of masculinity. I, I wasn't sure of your individual preoccupations. And the position possibly, is it the Chinese market and uh, what Chinese people might possibly be interested in in... in the wares of Hollywood, or the, you know, what I, I guess I'm interested in. That. I'm interested in the cultural specificity of what you're saying. What comments um, you would have on, you know, your own countries, and what possible meanings might be, or what could, what kind of preoccupations you trace in the country, and how it would um, connect with, you know, your own artistic preoccupations. So. Um, I've got possibly a more difficult question or a simpler question. To Yang Mei, I was really interested in your show and just wondering what changed when foot binding became 
um, unacceptable and why that was, what kind of catalyst there was around making it unacceptable. Was that driven by women themselves deciding not to do it to their daughters? And I ask that question because I know there's a lot of um, campaigning at the moment to try and stop female genital mutilation and with some success and some not success. And for example, the recent Ebola crisis has caused a ban on FGM in Sierra Leone. So sometimes an external shock can be a catalyst, but I just wonder what the history was in China. I'll take one more question. Hi, my name is Eileen. Um, all three of you come, whether originally or not, yeah, from societies that you say are relatively conservative. What I wanted to find out from you was um, what are your what are your top tips, in a sense, for resisting society's pressure to conform. And as I suppose for you, young men, being away from Malaysia, coming out here might, in a relatively liberal society, might be a lot easier. Um, and what what would your advice be for resisting that pressure? Let's say if you're in Singapore, where there's you know, overwhelming uh, pressure to become a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor and not really do anything creative. Okay, I'll go first, gosh. Um, some really good questions. Um, I think in terms of masculinity, um, my show uh, explores femininity, and uh, but I was also fascinated by masculinity because um, in my show I talk about um, as a child wanting to be like my grandfather, um, have masculine power because I felt that um, women were in my family were disempowered uh, because uh, just within also within Chinese culture, and I think that there is much to be. Um, done in, uh, in terms of um, masculine exploration of what it means to be a man and, and, and are the old traditional conservative images of what masculinity means are they relevant today and there are you know, lots of modern men in this room it would be interesting uh, if you guys got together and just to, you know, tell me what that, what that is about um, and maybe you guys can comment on, on that what it means to be a, a modern man um, in terms of <laughs> <laughs> this is probably taking into a different direction. Um, and, uh, in terms of uh, foot binding, um, actually, the Manchu uh, emperor in 1644 tried to stop foot binding, um, but uh, uh, the Chinese people um, resisted because the Manchus were a foreign invader, and uh, foot binding was seen as a as a national emblem of what it means to be a Chinese woman, and so uh, although there was a decree uh, 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 banning it, it carried on. And so it only came to an end around uh, 1911 uh, when a law was passed against it, uh, and then when uh, Ch uh, Mao and the communist era came in. Um, in about 1911, it became um, uh, uncool uh, to, to have bound feet. Modernity was the thing. And so uh, it was a, a, an internal changing of the mindset of what, uh, what being a Chinese woman meant. And the last question was about um, uh, coming out. Yes, I have to say uh, it, it was a lot easier to come out uh, in, in, in the UK than if I had lived in, uh, if I was living in, in Malaysia. But my family have been incredibly supportive. Um, and in the show, I actually recreate the moment that I come out to my mum. And she says to me, you are my daughter. You are my noi. And... Whatever you choose, I just want you to be happy. 
And so for my family, it was, um, it was difficult for them to have to deal with, you know, my mum had to give up the idea that I was going to you know, get married and have kids and this sort of thing. But I did become a lawyer, so I can't, that kind of helps. <laughs> they got that wrong. Um, and uh, I suppose it would be terrific if it was possible to have open, honest, heartfelt, empathetic and compassionate discussion about what it means to be gay. And for families, not just for the individuals who are gay, but for families of gay people to be able to talk about it. Um, and actually, you know, we're not two-headed monsters um, when all that kind of stuff, um, and to see how we can still, we are still um, members of society that contri can contribute in a, in a very powerful way. And for me, I was only be able, able to be creative and to step into my own personal power when I came out and could be my full person. Mm -hmm. Zaki and Ingson, would you like to come in and ask question? Well, let me touch on the part about the sort of the depression that we felt, you know, during my days in Singapore. I grew up um, pretty much in a very conservative society in Singapore where we train lawyers, accountants, doctors. Uh, so in my early days in you call secondary school, um, I actually tried to get myself kicked out of school as much as I can <laughs> because I hated school so much and this was really because I, I was just an artist I, I loved painting, I loved drawing and I was not very popular with the teachers um, and to answer your, your question Irene it's, uh, um, I never really felt the sheer pressure to be in any of those professions uh, and all I really wanted to do was this art uh, my dad runs an art gallery, so it was really influenced in the art and all that. And the only subjects I was good in uh, was uh, my English, mathematics, and my technical subjects. And I failed all the other subjects. And I successfully got myself kicked out of school, so I didn't finish high school. <laughs> so I don't have a whole level. And, uh, but the amazing thing was, you know, when I was kicked out, I was so happy. It was like the happiest day of my life. <laughs> I, I, I literally I celebrated because I don't have to go to school anymore. And I just continued to do art. And my parents were extremely supportive. And, um, and very soon I found myself, uh, I was enlisted in, a, in an art school in, in Savannah College of Design. I went straight into the master's program. And at the time, I wanted to do computer animation. And back in Singapore, people never heard of computer animation. What, I said I want to make movies. So it was in the film industry back in the early 90s. Um, and when I went to school you know, in the US, it was a, a real eye-opener for me. So the individual sort of self-expression of art, and you know, they would just embrace that. You know, I could do whatever I want, and uh, I can do whatever films I like. And I can actually put myself you know, in a creative world and project myself and actually be successful in doing that. So, you know, despite my sort of, uh, my unsuccessful secondary school life, but I found a new world in Hollywood, which I really tried. I, I was inspired to go um, to, make, to make movies when I was real little. I saw uh, a, a little film by Ray Harryhausen. It was stop motion. It was called The... Seven uh, 
voyages of Sinbad. It was really what really inspired me. So I would play little things, you know, and, and, and photograph them when I was real little, and nobody knew what I was doing. And, and when I went to America, when I went to school, it was just, I was in a world where everybody wants to make art and do the same thing. So it was a, it was a very different experience for me. Um, so talking a little bit about how do I project that into, you know, it's sort of the practical world of filmmaking right now in China. It's very hard to ignore the fact that the Chinese film market is going to be one of the biggest in the world, even surpassing the American film market. Um, last year, in 2004, the box office for the China film market has reached five billion U.S. dollars, and the American film market is about ten, so it's halfway mark. So in about three to five years, the Chinese film market is going to catch up to the American film market, and Hollywood is not going to be able to ignore that half the market is going to come from Asia, predominantly. Um, in a lot of films that you see recently, like Transformers, Iron Man, and there were scenes in there that, for some reason, you know, there's a cut scene that they were catering just to, just the Asian market, the Chinese market, and you see like product placement in these uh, films that were. I would say it's so atrocious. <laughs> yeah. But somehow the Hollywood you know, producers were like, going to make more and more films like that. And it appeals to a certain market. So the long story short is uh, <coughs> what really incites me in the, in the Chinese film market is uh, the Chinese market is like a sponge right now. And if you were to roll back 50 years from now and look at Hollywood you know, at the time, you can pretty much make any sort of film, any genre of films, and the Chinese market is just going to absorb. So it's a really exciting time for a lot of filmmakers right now. And to be able to tell the stories that you want to tell, you know, despite, you know, just a very unlike Hollywood, you know, is such a systematic and rigid sort of, a, um, sort of filmmaking machine that's so hard to break into, but the Chinese market right now is just completely free. Um, but, you know, like things that you have to work around, like the censorship problems, you know, um, and also like the, the foreign uh, film quotas right now that you have to sort of work around and, uh, to create your own film. So I'm not sure I answered that. But. <laughs> um well, my, 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 my background, you know, is almost the same as yours. I, think so. I mean, I grew up wanting to be an artist. Um, I can remember drawing uh, from as far back as I, you know, when I was like two, three, four years old. You know, I was drawing all the time. And by the time I finished school and it, it was time to go to university, I, I wanted to do fine arts, you know. But, but my mother, um, she thought that if I become an artist, I'm going to starve. <laughs> and she's going to feed me for the rest of my life you know, so. <laughs> but we did a compromise you know, I, I, did when, I did go to art school but um, I studied design instead so that led me into working in, in advertising for about, I don't know, 15 years or more um, but I was unhappy I was very unhappy um, and what I wanted to do was, you know, become a painter, and I was like reaching 40. 
Um, but one day I, I just made the decision to quit. You know, it was quite a sudden move. Um, I quit doing commercial work and and um, started painting. You know, and 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 I knew that if I start painting, you know, it's going to be very difficult because you know the art world is. It's not easy. It, it will take you five, ten years to make a name for yourself before you can, you know, sell a painting. So I did went back to my mother, uh, and she did fed me while while I painted. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I mean, although we we come from a very conservative family, but they were supportive. Yeah. So. I painted at home, um, and 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 um, yeah, and my mother fed me, and you know, and and it led me to where I am today. Thank you. <laughs> yes, um, we can open the So, uh, my name is Fang Long. Um, I'm researcher on Taiwan. Um, yeah, I like this um, topic very much. So um, today topic of rebellion and the foundation. So um, I'm more interested on the second one, foundations. Like um, you have to ask about the question about um, who who am I, where you came from, why you are doing this. There. So um, just I'm interested about the the cultural the heritage or the legacy foundation you inherited from the region Southeast Asia. So I have a, 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 each question to each artist. So the first one for the Nixon because the emanator is a kind of um I mean style. Yeah, of the expression, I think it's quite popular in the region, in Southeast Asia, also in East Asia, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, in China. So, do you do you think how this connect to the the cultural heritage you inherited from the region? And then the second one for the Zaki, I mean, I mean, I mean, you are the Muslim, right? And I I I was touched by your painting about like body, I mean, resemble Jesus, but you say this is a celebration of a rich the heritage. So, so my my question is, how about the kind of hafna or the uh, fundamental the Muslim? How did they comment or react to to this your mentality? And the third question to the young man, I mean, in Southeast Asia, it's very interesting. Have a kind of lady boy. Yeah, and <laughs> the kind of uh, the gender boundary is very blurred. It's, it's very, it's kind of unique in that region. So how do you think this connect to your the cultural foundation heritage in the region? Okay, thank you. Hi, um, I'm Sinping, my surname is Chan, so I would introduce myself to most of these people in this audience as Chan Sinping, and it's quite nice to be able to do that. I'm very sorry to say I'm actually a doctor and I'm from Singapore. So <laughs> a stereotype. I, I have um, sort of a two-part question. Um, I want to ask the speakers what, where they thought the pulse of rebellion was today. 
And I just wanted to pick up on a couple of the themes that they, they talked about. I mean, I'm coming up, for example, just last week, um, a friend of mine has published um, a, a guide for young queer people in Southeast Asia on coming up precisely. She felt that she wanted to share a story. And people nowadays are more connected than before. So, so that narrative, you know, is one example of how things are changing. Um, again, a, a couple of weeks ago, another friend of mine, also in Singapore, he, um, he spent the first, I don't know, 15 to 25 years of his life being a bit of a gangster. Um, he was a druggie, he was an alcoholic, he beat, he beat people up. And he's now, you know, law became his way of fixing his life, so he's now a pro bono lawyer in Singapore. And I think they're going to make a film about his life. So, I, I mean, it, it, in having been here for a few years, it, it appears that the narratives of rebellion and change are in themselves changing as we speak. Um, and I, I guess in response to that, I wanted to see where the speakers thought things were going, um, to comment on the president and also comment what they thought the direction of travel was, because I think we've focused a bit more on the past in this conversation. Thanks. Okay, you, um, you were asking about what were the reactions of people. Um, well, yeah, there, there was some um, controversy, and um, but you know, the, the, the art scene in Malaysia is pretty small, so the government hardly takes notice. <laughs> but um, so it didn't become a national issue uh, or anything like that. <laughs> but but I, I do have um, it did initiate a dialogue between friends, you know, and a few people who, who were interested in the arts, and, and it was a kind of dialogue which I welcomed, because um, um, in the end, you know, things can be resolved by, by an exchange of ideas. Um, um, there were a few people who, who refused to go to my exhibitions, um, which I, you know, which I know, um, because um, I painted this kind of images, you know, but, um, you know, I mean, you do things which you have to do, and, um, and, and whatever uh, reaction there is, you, you just have to handle it, yeah. Thank you. Well, just to answer your question on the foundation of sort of my own heritage, you know, coming from Asia and, you know, working and living in a society that's mainly white people and uh, so I think the interesting thing that I that is occurring right now in Asia primary it's like um, the film market is ex extremely exciting right now you see more and more Chinese films and you see more and more uh, films that are animated films which is you know very sort of uh, I would say when I was a kid you know I probably didn't enjoy that much animated films it's now because Animated films are sort of so popular and they make so much money and, and people are just making more and more of these films. But obviously, how's that? How do, what do I learn in terms of like, you know, my foundation? I think growing up in Asia, you know, and especially in Singapore, I left Singapore when I was 20. Um, it definitely is a very conservative society. You're not sort of taught to, you know, learn how to I mean, the word self-expression is really not the thing. You know, when you go to school, teachers never really teach, you know, individual students. You just 
got to learn this and you know be useful in society. Hopefully, when you graduate. Um, but in the U.S., it's very different, you know, um, especially when it's uh, it's in the narrative or in the filmmaking, especially in animation. I think the most important thing, like Yang Mei would talk, you know, what you talked about, it's really the story. Um, the story is really one of the most important thing, and how do you create, you know, a story, um, you know, based on you know, sort of my upbringing in, in, in Singapore, which is so conservative. When I and when I go to the U.S., what, what I learned it's uh, the form of storytelling. You know, it's the ability to project yourself for the audience to feel empathy, uh, to feel like they want to care about the character. You know, it's like you're telling your story, and how do you tell your story um, that everybody wants to know or care about? It's it's, it's really important. It's that's that's a really important thing I learned um, in the U.S. For instance, like when I was involved in the, the early days of uh, pre-production of uh, Shrek at the time, which became a very successful film, um, I learned that um, you know, in terms of storytelling, um, there's so many aspects of it that, um, for instance, you know, we'll tell a story you know, from a point of view of you know, different demographics. Um, from a kid to a adult to a female to a male, and we will actually really study that to actually create scenes in a movie that people actually feel about. They can they can actually relate to. So if you look at a movie, um, an animated movie, which you think it's it's just for kids, it's not for kids. It's really not for kids. Every part of that movie, in every event that happens in the movie, is designed to let you feel certain empathy, to excite you, uh, to relate to the audience, to actually move the audience. So if you study animated films, because it's such an uh, amazing art form that the directors and producers were putting so much time in the narrative and in the actions and not just you know, in the dialogues, but in also in every aspect of the lighting and mood, is to tell an individual story. So the first thing is the most important thing is you got to make the characters feel like you can really care for. And, and if you can't follow that character throughout the two entire two hours in a the movie, then it's a terrible film. <laughs> you know. So the most important thing you know that I learned you know in my heritage is how do you project yourself in the film that create these events that make people feel like they want to know they want to know you. They want to be motivated to do something. It's what I really learned in the U.S., which is very, very uh, enticing and, and, and also fruitful, right? Um, so there were two questions. Um, your first question about ladyboys, um, that is specific to Thailand, I, uh, that, that phrase. Um, and in Malaysia, the, the, the word was bondan. And as a child, um, I wanted to uh, be a boy because, as I said, I, wa- I was fascinated by male power. So I dressed as a boy, and I had lace-up shoes and short hair, and I, I, I talk about that in, in my show. Um, and I had, for a while, it was fun, and I loved it, and it felt really empowering. But then, as I grew up, I heard this phrase, you know, this word, bondan, a year, bondan, in that very... Uh, you know, um, contemptuous, awful way. And I suddenly thought, am I a Bondan? And it, it, 
in a way, it was terrifying. And, and I started to let go of, of my um, tomboyness. And I became more and more feminine. And I actually hid in the... I felt like I was in drag in my 20s with big hair and big shoulder pads. You know, it was the 80s and, um, uh, and high heels. Big, and I was like a drag queen because I was um, acting out this image in my mind of what it meant to be feminine. Um, but I, I, I wasn't connected to that. Um, and in terms of what is the pulse of rebellion now, I think it's around free speech. Um, not just in Malaysia and Asia, but also in the UK and in America. Because with social media, um, you know, you, you type something out on Twitter, you send something out, and people, the outrage. It's very easy to sit in your, in, in your room and go, this is disgusting, uh, this is terrible, this must be stopped. Um, take that down. And, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, Cumberbatch. Um, he misspoke and used the word coloured instead of black. And the, the storm that, you know, attacked him, he was actually trying to say something um, valuable and, and on, on the side of good, if you like. Um, but because he was just, as I am now, just blathering away, out came this word, and it's outrageous, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I, I think that there is a, a danger that we self-censor and we censor others on Twitter and on social media because of this kind of knee-jerk outrage. And you can't have a proper debate, a discussion, um, a civil discussion, um, and on, on social media because people are just venting. And so then you shut down, and that's where the danger is, that free speech becomes um, shut down. Mm. Thank you. Um, Again, um, I have a question that's addressed to all of you. Um, all of you seem to come from quite privileged, supportive backgrounds, so that perhaps, perhaps rebelling rather than kicking down the door was a slow opening. I was wondering if, for those who are not as, where we're not as privileged, if you like, or as lucky, what, what, what tips might you give, or what advice might you share so that people could have that same sense of bravery or boldness that may not have, I may be mistaken, but may not have been as um, difficult to, to cultivate because you had so much support. Thank you. Yes, Hello, my name is Nathan. My question is specific to Nixon. You mentioned a 45-day shoot in Hong Kong. What challenges uh, faced you there? And sort of separate but Im important to, I think, the pulse. Um, how has 3D printing affected your pre-production process or is shaping the Chinese film industry? which is that you said for the past couple of years you've had a chance to work in the Chinese film industry. Um, do you see that you know movies coming out in China over the past couple of years say uh, have a particular theme which resonates more with the public? You know, whether it is more a Hollywood theme or whether it is more a westernized theme. But perhaps the newer Chinese movies are actually letting go of a lot of the more so-called so traditional 
uh, trying to do with this LBC. And um, my second question is towards um, Yao Mei. And you mentioned you know, social media as a form of, of rebellion. Um, you know, do you think that social media is really an effective form of rebellion? Knowing other parts, if we look outside Southeast Asia, let's say the Arab Spring, we do see social media as almost like a uh, paving the way for the changes that we see. Now, do you see something similar in the Southeast Asia region? Thank you. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, no, I've got a mic. Uh, privilege. Yes, I feel very guilty for being so privileged. Um, and, and, and yes, it is, it is e relatively easier for, for people like us um, to make a stand and to come out and all that. And um, I don't really know what the answer is. Uh, and other than instinctively, I feel that education um, for young girls in particular, I think, is an issue around Asia and the developing countries. Um, and that if, uh, if young girls can be educated, then that helps them in the workforce uh, and to uh, um, uh, what is the word? enrich the nations uh, as, uh, that, that they live in. And I think there are, there are scientific studies and economic studies that, that prove that when you educate uh, a girl, then you actually uh, raise the GDP by a certain percentage. Um, and in terms of the question about social media, um, I think there are, there are two, two aspects to it. That yes, that in places like, you know, for Arab, the Arab Spring, that was quite powerful. And from my research for my business book um, uh, on social media a few years ago, my understanding was that the bloggers in Malaysia did, they didn't topple the government, but they did um, cause ripples of unease. And that as a result, um, that was the first time that the main party lost a number of seats. Um, and that, that, that made, it, made them very anxious. Um, and so then there were a team of government bloggers that were sent out there to fight the good fight against the um, anti-establishment bloggers. Um, but I think that social media also can give us in the West, us privileged people in the West, a sense that we're doing something. Like if you disagree with this, or like if you want to support this thing. Oh yes, like, I've done my bit for society, but actually you haven't really. Um, so yeah, there's so two aspects. Well, to answer your question about privilege, um, I actually don't come from a very wealthy family. Um, my mother used to sell like uh, noodles. You know, I used to follow my mother around and uh, carry noodles for her. Uh, when I was little, as I remember, <clears throat> I don't have any pocket money. And I have to just make do on my own. And my mother used to bring lunch the whole time. So one day I got so sick and tired of her bringing lunch to me. It's not that the lunch is not good. The lunch is fantastic, but... I, I was, because I was so fascinated with people, like, students around me, they had money, and, like, during, like, recess time at a time, and they could buy anything they want. But I have to, like, eat my mother's lunch the whole time when I was little. So I guess I just want to know, like, what does it feel like to have money, to be able to purchase something, to buy the things I want to eat? As simple as that. So I drove myself to actually pick up little magazines around my little area. So I, I live in an area where there's a lot of printers, and they will throw out all these magazines. <laughs> they were like bad copies, but they're actually pretty good. So I picked up these like music magazines that I was selling at school. So that's how I started, you know, sort of my own business. And when I was, I think, what eight or nine years old. So early in the morning, I'll just bicycle around all these little 
printer shops, you know, just pick up magazines and I'll sell them at school. And I actually made money. I made money and my and I told my mom, I said, Look, mom, you don't have to bring me lunch anymore, you know. So I got money. I said, What do you just steal the money? <laughs> uh, I didn't steal the money. But I told her I was very good in art, which she knows. And I helped, you know, friends of mine and I just draw like back in those days we have like heavy metal, like A C D C and all that. I'll draw all these like really crazy pictures on the backs. So you know they paid me like twenty cents or thirty cents to do that's how I made money when I was little. So that's what propelled my interest in art, so to speak. And ever since then, I really didn't really need any money from my parents. And when I went to school in the U.S., obviously they needed a lot of money. So, and my, my, my parents were very supportive. They actually sold the house. They mortgaged the house, actually supported me in, in the U.S. because I couldn't find a place in Singapore to actually go to school, technically, back then. So, you know... I think that's the thing that, that that's the only privilege that I got from my parents. I'm very, very, you know, uh, sort of um, grateful, right? But that really would, you know, sort of propel my career back in those days. But you know, when I came back to Asia, it was very similar. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to do my own films. So about ten years ago, I start. I create my own company, and I just make do on my own, um, and I just go out there. I have no business sort of a uh, formal uh, training and I can't even read a, in a, in a, what do you call a profit and loss at a time I have to hire an accountant to look at my company and you know how much money I was spending but I I, I grew you know I grew and, and, and I grew to know more about accounting to, more, to learn how to run a business and when I came back to Asia in early 2004, uh, I was able to raise millions of dollars, and I was able to raise it without a business plan, um, just inspiring, you know, like uh, investors to invest in my own company to create art, to make films, animated films. And obviously, you know, I went up and down <coughs> and the roller coaster ride. I raised millions of dollars, and I lost millions of dollars. <laughs> I made me. Started like 15 different companies and closed like 10 of them. <laughs> but interestingly, you know, I grew into knowing how to actually do a business plan, a proper business plan, talk to investors. I can go into any investors meeting and talk to them about IPO issues, about, you know, how, you know, to get to, to break even and to exit strategies and stuff like that. So it's all self-taught. I learned all this by myself. Because I had a business, I had to do it. I had to raise the money to keep the company going. So that was the privilege that I got, is to I put myself in the environment, so to speak. Right? And to ask you a question, am I good yeah. for time? Yeah. So just a quick uh, question. Uh, the 45-day shoot was actually so intensive because I've never shot a film in Asia before. My Hollywood experience has been like, Everybody has a job that's clearly defined, and a director has like three scenes in a, in, a, in a day he has to shoot. But in Hong Kong, it's totally different. The director goes on set after shooting three scenes and says, Oh, you know, we have some more time. Let's shoot another scene here, let's shoot another scene here, maybe put the camera here, put the camera there. So we end up with 10 scenes in a, in, a, in a day. And then people on set will have like the, the gaffer or the, you know, the forerunner. 
they will have like three or four different jobs at one time. And you kind of like have to figure out who's doing what. And then you go to speak Cantonese at the same time, which I'm fluent in Cantonese, you know, thank God. So I learned so much, you know, on set, you know, like one time, you know, just in quick experience, I, there was a team of people putting up the green screens because we had a lot of green screen shoots. Um, and these people were doing like four other different things. And it took like six hours to do the green screen, you know. And I was going crazy. The, the, the producer was just yelling at me. The director was killing me. I said, Nixon, what happened to the green screen? But I said I told him to fix the green screen, but it took like six hours because they were doing like four different things. So I had to like organize the team. I said, okay, this is the green screen team. This is the sound team. This is the different team. So they have to pre-made all the screens, you know, before, you know, you go on the shoot. So I had to learn the hard way, which is very interesting. Right. I don't remember the, the last question, the lady. Sorry? 3D printing. Oh, 3D printing. I think 3D printing is going to revolutionize the entire film industry. Completely. I would say completely. Um, the ability to print something now in 3D is so quick, right? There is a whole uh, aspect of miniature making model, like scaled on model, which it's all, it's extremely important in filmmaking. We just didn't, you know, the bread and butter electric like, filmmaking. <clears throat> Especially now, you know, days you see, like, there's so many visual effects films out there. I mean, the highest grossing films are all the visual effects films. I mean, Transformers, Iron Man, you name it. <clears throat> the thousands of scenes in there that requires miniature making, you know, uh, 3D printing technology. So why am I saying that is because the ability to have an object printed you know, in rapid prototyping in hours, completely revolutionized the way films are being made nowadays. I mean, back then you had to hire a sculptor, you had a painter, and then you got to, you know, create the mold and all. I mean, forget about all that, you know. Everything's all done digitally right now, and you can print it in hours. And every filmmaker is taking advantage. We are taking advantage of that right now. That's the reason why we set up a model shop and a miniature shop in China. Because this is the way film is going to make, be made in the future. Right. Sorry. Do, do I have one more question? Yeah, I was going to ask you the changing uh, themes in Chinese movie industry that you've seen over the past couple years. Sorry, say that again? The changing kind of themes that you see in Chinese movie industry. That was my question. Oh, okay. Well, if you, if you track the local Chinese film industry, I mean, the biggest crossing films are still the local films, despite all the big Hollywood films that makes it in China. But you're going to see more and more um, international film because <coughs> the filmmakers are the Chinese filmmakers are not satisfied, you know, with just their own market. You know, a lot of filmmakers are trying to push the boundaries of how international films are being made, especially in the Hollywood way. But Hollywood's trying to figure out how to. You know, geared towards the taste, you know, to Chinese markets so that they can actually make more money in Chinese market. But so the interesting thing is the local filmmakers in China are all trying to make international films right now. Uh, more to respect it, more to this, the aspect of like um, getting recognition internationally, not just to make local films, but to actually cater more to the international markets. Um, you can see more and more of that is in terms of like storytelling. It's going to change a whole lot because um, China is studying Hollywood, Hollywood is studying China. 
um, a lot of times you see the filmmakers are trying <coughs> to tell the story you know, in a very Hollywood way. Um, in terms of you know, a lot of um, the international taste you know, in storytelling because if you look at um, Chinese film right now, um, you may not be able to understand a lot about the Chinese film because it's so local, because the storytelling, the narrative is geared towards you know, the very cultural sort of basics of Chinese people. But in international film, you watch a Hollywood film. A, a Mexican or a Latino or a Chinese or anybody who watches the movie can tell the story, can actually follow the story. Why is that? Because, you know, the Hollywood is so cosmopolitan, you know. They are able to actually average out all these, you know, different ways of storytelling and create something, a popular product. That's what Chinese audiences are doing right now. They're slowly gearing towards that, but I, I'm sure in, in the next five to ten years, they, they were able to get there very relatively quickly. Right. Thanks. Um, I do have a question for Zaki. Um, you mentioned in your presentation um, that you are driven quite often by this compulsion to create yeah. in your work, and I was wondering um, if you would term this compulsion as a form of rebellion, say, or is it something else? Um, no, I, I wouldn't say it's a form of rebellion. Uh, oops, sorry. What's that? Um, um, no. Um, you know, as an artist, I, I'm, I'm, I'm driven by pictures, by images, yeah. And, and, um, and sometimes um, a picture would come to my mind, you know. Like maybe you saw a, the drawing there of a man lying with, with a tail, you know. It's just something that came to my mind. And... and, and the image was so strong, I, ha I had to, to, to paint it, I had to draw it. But I couldn't really understand why, you know. Um, the method I, um, I, I, I use is a bit Freudian, you know, um, in the sense that you sort of dig into, into your subconscious mm -hmm. and, 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 and try to decipher, you know. This is what um, propels my work, really, you know. I, I don't really sit and think about what I'm going to paint next, you know. Um, rather, I, I let my mind um, go free, and 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 and, and sometimes, you know, um, things come, mm -hmm. and 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 I react, yeah. And and I don't have to understand what I'm doing, you know. But that compulsion, when it's there, then I know I have to do it. Yeah, and, 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 and later, you know, you sit and figure out what it's all about. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, regretfully, I'm going to have to bring this panel to a close. Um, but um, before I do so, uh, I would like to emphasize that the um, LSE Sorcery Hawk Southeast Asia Center has a whole series of exciting events lined up this term and next. So please do check the website for um, precise details. Um, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed your presentations today, um, Zaki, uh, Nixon, Yangmei. Um, and I think what really emerged from today's discussion um, is the fact that the creative process is a fraught one. It can be challenging, it can be compulsive, it can even be courageous. Um, but I think what really stands out for me is that it's ultimately a very rewarding and fulfilling process. And um, it's great that you were able to share your personal stories and personal journeys with us today. So thank you very much. Um, please join me in thanking our three speakers.